This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, what's so wonderful about this, John, is that um, you and I talking right now about politics is the very finale of almost 45 years of trying to study the brain. And I really did start by studying love. The voice of Helen Fisher bringing insight to a topic that we at Intelligence Squared spent a lot of time thinking about and puzzling over, which is why disagreement is making us into enemies with each other. And can we learn to disagree but still get along? Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and this is not a debate program, but actually a conversation about the state of our discourse, especially across the dividing lines of politics and policy and culture. And we're good with dividing lines at Intelligence Squared. It's what debate is about. And we think that's a valuable exercise when it's done in good faith. But what about all of the bad faith arguing that's going on out there where each side is only misrepresenting and putting down and demonizing the other side? Where is this coming from? Well, when it comes to politics, Helen Fisher thinks that at least some of what divides us is baked into our biology. That how we see the world and how we vote depends very much on our brain chemistry, and that comes along with our DNA. Basically, we are born with our politics. Well, let's see what she's getting at. Helen Fisher, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, John. I'm delighted to be with you. So, Helen, there has been a lot of talk this year about how partisan we've become as a nation. This is something we've been focusing on, uh, especially this year and especially this election season. And it's something that you've been studying as a biological anthropologist for a long time. And you've been coming up with this theory that our political views are actually tied to our brain chemistry. So in just one or two sentences, you know, the 30-second version of what you're going to persuade us about, how does our brain chemistry influence our politics? Well, as Aristotle said, man is by nature a political animal. And I'm going to show a great deal of data that um, really has begun to prove that um, our instincts really play an enormous role in what we believe and how we vote and how we believe about international affairs and all kinds of domestic policy. Is this a new idea that our politics are somehow inborn or, or have people been looking at this concept for a while now? It's interesting. They, you know, I'm an identical twin. And uh, in the 1950s and 60s and even 70s, uh, people really believed that, um, you know, we were an empty slate. The brain was an empty uh, box almost in which you put experience and personality. And starting in really in the 1950s, but certainly by the 1970s, uh, anthropologists and certainly political scientists have come to believe that a good deal of uh, our political uh, traits uh, uh, are based in genetics. That, uh, in fact, as much as 40 to 60 percent of our political differences uh, stem from our genetics. So before we get to your work, I'm sure that, as you've just put it, a lot of work has been done about this and you know about it. So how was the evidence derived for, for this claim over the years that it's inherited, our politics are inherited? It really 
began in 1974, there was a big study of uh, identical twins, fraternal twins. And they ended up finding that identical twins really do share the same political views on the death penalty, on immigration, on moral issues, on employment, on abortion, on, on many other things. Whereas dizygotic or fraternal twins really diverge, just like a sister and brother uh, will diverge in their political views. But I think the foundational study was done in 1986 uh, by a guy called Nick Martin in Australia. And he looked at 4,600 pairs of identical and fraternal twins. And he was really able to establish uh, sort of scientifically for the first time that ideology and attitudes really are inheritable. It's very interesting that... um, Apparently, children, when they grow up, really just um, have pretty much the same political opinions as their parents. But by age 18, uh, they begin to develop their own beliefs. And sure enough, identical twins end up remaining uh, very similar, whereas fraternal twins begin to uh, diverge. And in fact, there was one study in which um, they looked at babies and uh, children aged four and a half You can predict by age four and a half whether a child is going to end up being a conservative at age 18 or liberal at age 18. So one thing that you said I'm a little bit puzzled by, if uh, these attitudes and behaviors and voting patterns, et cetera, are ultimately heritable, why would children be different from their parents? Wouldn't you see a trend that they would tend to have the same voting attitudes and, and political attitudes as their parents if they've grown up in the same household? Yes, they're going to. And one study was uh, children ages 9 to 17, and they really did hold the same uh, attitudes as their parents. And as a matter of fact, a lot of these uh, political scientists are beginning to feel that that, uh, your your, your parents' attitudes play a rather small role, that there's many other things that do play a role, your life experiences as you get older, what's happening to you at the moment, and certainly genetics and hormones. So, I mean, back to that study of of children aged four and a half, what they ended up finding was that um, children aged four and a half, fearful, frightened children at age four and a half are quite likely to end up being conservative at age 18. Whereas children at age four and a half who are very active uh, and really quite fearless uh, and restless uh, at age four and a half are quite likely to be liberal at age 18. And actually I can understand it. It sounds bizarre, but actually I think I can explain it. Go for it. I want to, you know, I wanted to move right on to your work now. So that was a perfect transition. <laughs> well, I, one other thing first that I that I would like to think about this fear these these children who are fearful at age um, uh, at age four and a half and then uh, uh, at age eighteen um, uh, end up being conservative. There's a one study that really interests me. It was in 2008 in Science Magazine. It was about political attitudes. And what they did is they took 46 people in Lincoln, Nebraska, University of Nebraska, uh, who were really on the opposite ends of the scale, very conservative or very liberal. They studied their heart rate. They studied their blink response, the startle response, and also skin conductivity. Apparently, when you are aroused, the tips of your fingers begin to sweat. So they used those three parameters. And they showed them uh, some really sort of horrifying pictures. One picture was of a man with a huge spider on his face. Another was of uh, somebody who was very dazed and a whole bloody face. And a third was an open wound, wound with maggots in it. 
And the people who had the lower startle response, less sensitivity uh, to those photographs and to also allowed noises were more inclined to be in favor of foreign aid, immigration, pacifism, and other liberal values. Whereas those individuals who had a higher physiological response to the stimuli um, were more in favor of defense spending and capital punishment and patriotism and a host of other things. They were more interested in school prayer, less interested in foreign uh, aid, uh, more interested in premarital lack of sex, uh, don't want gay marriage, etc. So you see, leading up to my own data, the scientific view that conservatives are more inclined for caution because of fear, whereas liberals are less inclined for caution. They're not as scared, and so they're more willing to have a broader view of of immigration and premarital sex, et cetera. So that has been really the standard till recently, is this fact that um, conservatives and liberals have a very different feeling of, of protection well, let me take in a little bit before we move on to your work, just to, so I understand with a little bit more texture and complexity some of the examples you're citing. So how do you interpret a position on foreign aid to have a fear or lack of fear element to it? What's to be scared of? What I have found is that there's a, a brain system, the serotonin system, and people who are very expressive of the serotonin system of the brain are what we call harm avoidant. It's a basic genetic thing. In the serotonin system is a trait linked with harm avoidance. They want to, and they want uh, to solidify. They want order. They want um, stability. My guess is that that bleeds into a fear of immigration changing that stability, giving more foreign aid, reaching out to others is not protecting the in-group. As a matter of fact, I mean, you know, as uh, Friedrich Hayek said, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize winner, he said, you know, man's instincts evolved in small roving bands, and we've got a very strong in-group and a strong out-group instinct. And I think that our fears of immigration, these people who are afraid of it, um, are more likely to be afraid of it because they're cautious, because they want to protect the in-group, because they need a sense of protection, of stability and order. And somehow immigration and reaching out to others destabilizes that. So so foreign aid, maybe I, I'm, I'm still trying to make sense of this. Is, are you sort of saying that people would be opposed to foreign aid in the same way that they want to put aside their own money for a rainy day? In other words, conserve yes. your resources for yourself? Yes. To protect yes, yourself. Yes, as a matter of, yes. And I mean, it's it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I mean, these same people are going to be more suspect of a lot of foreign policy because they want to protect the in-group. Uh, they want to punish people who uh, don't create order. Uh, you know, they, they are very interested in a very strong in-group sense, which must have evolved for very adaptive reasons, too, by the way. I mean, one thing I have wanted to say for years is that they're both adaptive. I mean, a strong sense of the in-group and protection and caution and fear is adaptive to the human animal, but so is a strong sense of, oh, who are those people over there? Maybe we can learn something. Maybe we ought to help them out. Maybe we ought to invite them in. Maybe we can create a larger, more interesting society, more, uh, you know, more progressive. Uh, I don't, I shouldn't use the word progressive because it means something politically. But the bottom line is, I think both instincts are good. And in fact, you know, you just reminded me of this. We have... Some people are more expressive of the traits in the dopamine system. 
they like the outgroup. Some people are more, um, the want stability and order. Uh, and it's basically the two basic parts of the brain or two personality styles, one that wants stability and the other that wants plasticity. Um, and I call that the stay system and the go system. Uh, and I think that conservatives are, are, they've got the brain circuitry in the serotonin system linked with the stay system. Whereas those who are very expressive of, oh, interested in foreign aid and migration, et cetera, are, are people who have um, an interest instead in, the, they're expressive of the dopamine system in the brain. And that's the go system. Let's find out who's over the hill. Let's see if they can add something to us. Let's be innovative. Uh, and I think that both systems, the stay system and the go system, or stability versus plasticity, evolve together. We're in the midst of a conversation about genopolitics and how genetics and early childhood development play into your politics. More on that coming up from Intelligence Squared U.S. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Let's return now to my conversation with Helen Fisher and the genetic roots of our political beliefs. I want to move on now to your work, but I want to do it by taking a side trip first through something else that you've worked on. And the way I want to focus on that is I, I want to go back to a, a, a debate that we held at Intelligence Squared in New York City back in uh, uh, just around Valentine's Day in the year 2018. We had a debate where the resolution was swipe left dating apps are destroying romance. And you were one of our debaters, by which I want to say welcome back, by the way. You were one of our debaters, and you were arguing in defense of dating apps. You were saying that they were not destroying romance and actually that they were enhancing romance. And I, I just want to sort of set the scene that you, there you were on a stage uh, as an anthropologist making this argument in front of 400, 500 people. The house was packed for this particular debate and people were having kind of a good time. And, and you were getting a lot of laughs, but also landing a lot of points. And, um, and, and, and you, you got up and you did your closing. And I just want to give a little bit of a taste of, of what that closing was like. Around the world, people love. They sing for love, they dance for love, they compose songs and stories and ballets and operas and movies about love. They retell myths and legends about love. They have love charms, love potions, love magic, and love holidays like Valentine's Day. We pine for love, we live for love, we kill for love, and we die for love. In fact, the oldest love letter that I saw uh, in Istanbul was from 4,000 years ago. It was written in cuneiform on a lump of clay. In those days, people most likely um, romanced in person. And as I've been up here tonight, I've began to wonder whether they once had a debate called cuneiform is killing romance. 
All right. So you got a, you got a good laugh with that. But I wanted to introduce that to give a to, to help us understand the kind of work that you do. And I want to reveal now that the reason you are on that stage is that you are also a consultant for Match.com, the dating website. And you have helped them develop their algorithms that improve the way that they match people together according to their to the traits that you are able to divine from the questionnaires that they fill out, et cetera. Um, so I want to get a sense of, of your work overall. Tell people what it is you do with questionnaires and with data and with understanding human beings and human behavior before we turn back to the question of politics and, and, and brain chemistry. Well, what's so wonderful about this, John, is that um, you and I talking right now about politics is the very finale of almost 45 years of trying to study the brain. And I really did start by studying love. And in my day, when I started in studying love, nobody believed that, that, that it was an instinct, that it was a drive, that it came out of nature. And um, I was convinced that if there was any part at all of human behavior that would have a biological basis, it would be the way we form our partnerships. Because as Darwin would have said, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. So the bottom of uh, the bottom line is that love matters. It drives you to move towards some people and form a partnership and send your DNA into tomorrow. So I began studying love and um, I was able to, we, we were the first actually in the world to put people into a brain sc scanner and study the brain circuitry of romantic love. And um, as a matter of fact, it comes from the most primitive parts of the brain. The main factory for romantic love lies right next to the factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love drives you to form a partnership and send your DNA into tomorrow. So that was the beginning of it. And then sort of on to how I arrived at some of my understanding of the instincts of politics. It's very interesting. You know, a lot of people have said that, um, you know, uh, politics can't be have an instinctual origin. And in fact, when I was reading up uh, to talk to you today, I began to, I, was, I saw one thing and they said, well, you know, everybody has political beliefs. And by the way, they don't change. Uh, in one study I did with Match.com of 5,000 Americans, it's a, I didn't, I don't, with Match, I do not um, poll the Match members. These are national representative samples of Americans based on the U.S. Census. So it's real science. And in one study of politics, I, I asked, have you changed your political view? And 95% of uh, 5,000 people had not changed their political view uh, in the last 10 years. So it's as basic as love. And, uh, and so anyway, well, just a little bit more about this. I, so I put people in the brain scanner, studied the brain circuitry of romantic love, and then um, Match came to me and they asked me, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And this is what led me to my understanding of personality and eventually to my understanding of really the biology of politics. So um, that's, a, that's it in a nutshell. I've written six books on it. And now you've galvanized me to maybe write an academic article on my views of the instincts of uh, behind politics. And, and 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 what disciplines do you need to to pull into this work? Obviously computers, statistics, genetics, uh what else? Everything. 
everything. I mean, in order to, you know, if you need, I mean, I study things across cultures. As a matter of fact, uh, I created a questionnaire to see, um, I want to know why you're naturally driven to some people rather than others. I mean, you know, people will say, well, we have chemistry or we don't have chemistry. Why is that? So I really, if you're going to do a cross-cultural thing, uh, and understand why people in China have chemistry, people in Australia, people in Peru, people in Afghanistan. I mean, they all love and they all have political views. And it's got to have come from some sort of, uh, uh, from your nature. So I really had to do brain scanning for sure, fMRI. But I also had to do, oh, I've looked at 80 cultures through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, uh, and they've got data on marriage and divorce from 1947 to, well, the last I looked was 2011. Um, but I also, I like poetry. I think that world poetry says a tremendous amount about uh, who you are and how you feel. Well, I, example, I, I, could, I could hear a little poetry yeah. in, in, the, in your closing remark on that debate, the way that you, you know, we, 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 we kill for love, we this for love. It was very, yeah. very, it was very, very nicely constructed line. Well, thank you. I could, I could hear your appreciation of language in that. I have one more question on the, on the love thing before we move on back to, to politics. Is it the case that people need to be like each other to be in love? In other words, do you need to? Are people being matched for similarity uh, mm-hmm. by these algorithms, or are they being matched for difference? Do opposites attract, or do likes attract? Well, it's very interesting that. I used to have two piles of, of um, academic papers on either side of my desk. One was all the people maintaining that opposites attract, and the other was all people maintaining that likes attract. And here's the basic data. In terms of some things, likes attract. We tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence and good looks, same uh, um, uh, degree of education, uh uh, same uh, religious and social values, same economic and reproductive goals. Uh, in those ways, similarity attracts. But then when I take a look at the brain, basic brain systems of personality, in some cases, personality attracts, and in other cases, opposites attract. And that's what led me to my understanding of politics. Well, the way I want to get into it is I'm interested, for a starting point, to return to politics, are liberals marrying liberals and conservatives marrying conservatives? Is there a political attraction going on? Yes, as it turns out, there is. It was a Pew study just a year ago, and they found that 77% of both Republicans and Democrats had married or were living with somebody who shared their, uh, who were f- from the same political party. Now, there is a question. Political scientists aren't absolutely convinced that just because you're of a particular party that you're going to vote uh, with that party line. But the bottom line is 77% of both Republicans and Democrats do marry or fall for somebody uh, who's from their party. What's interesting is I did a study only a few months ago um, in August of another 5,000 Americans, once again, a, a, a national sample. And I asked the question, uh, how important is it to you to go out with somebody who shares your political views? 76% said, yes, it's very important. Now, that is up from about 52% only a couple of years ago. Mm. So we are, we are becoming more and more polarized, more and more eager to find somebody who agrees with us politically. And when I asked, could you fall in love with somebody with different political views? This is in August, very recently. 48% said yes. This is down from last year when it was 63%. So yes, we are doing what academics call positive assortative 
mating. We are politically beginning to be drawn much more to people from our own political uh, background. So there are going to be people listening to this who are going to say, that's not me. I, I married, my, my spouse and I really disagree on this topic or that topic. And I, I'm assuming that those people are out there, but you're saying that they're the minority at this point. Am I right about that? Yes. Our data comes from, it's a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. census. So we've got everybody who's 18 to 90 plus, uh, rural, suburban, urban, uh, black, white, Asian, Latino. Uh, uh, and uh, in fact, that's what we find. Yes, people are gravid. What's interesting, though, is that um, uh, people looking for love are are more and more centrist when it comes to uh, oh, marriage equality, um, issues with the police, uh, um, global warming. They're becoming more and more centrist in those uh, aspects with their values, but they are less and less tolerant of somebody from the other side of the aisle. So let's go back to um, your, your, your deeper research and the broader points that you're making that there are, there's a biological influence on our brain chemistry and that our brain chemistry through a variety of different brain systems determines our behaviors and ultimately those uh, predilections in terms of behaviors will also affect the way we see the world and the way that we're going to vote or at least take a stand on a political issue. I think I have that right. So talk about those brain systems. Talk about what's inside the brain, what's going on. I think it's going to get a little bit into some chemistry here, but that's okay. If you can make it accessible, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. I have been able to establish that we've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems in the brain. So to figure this out, I, I went through, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years of medical and, and academic literature. And I've, there's a lot of systems in the brain, but most of them keep the eyes blinking or the heart beating, not linked with any personality trait. But these four basic brain systems is each one of them linked with a constellation or a suite of personality traits. So if you're very, now we all express all of them, but to different degrees. So if you're very expressive of traits in the, let's say, serotonin system, you tend to be conventional, traditional, uh, cautious, not fearful, but cautious. These people follow the rules. They respect authority. They're concrete thinkers rather than uh, theoretical thinkers. They like uh, plans and schedules. And um, they tend to be conventionally religious, not spiritual, but conventionally religious. And, and, and fact, what is it about even, serotonin you know, that, that's making that happen? What does serotonin do? What does it regulate that would, that would connect it to, to, to caution? You'd get a Nobel Prize if you could answer that question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, there might be somebody that knows, but I haven't read about it. Okay. Uh, the bottom line is when scientists look at, uh, for example, the way this is established and the way I established it is, for example, people who take an SSRI like a Prozac or Paxil or Lexapro, one of the new ones, um, uh, they become more cautious. They become more managerial. They tend to become more traditional. Um, you, all kinds of studies. Now, for example, if you take um, estrogen replacement as a middle-aged woman, uh, you're amping up the estrogen system. And in fact, you end up uh, having more verbal skills. Um, if you inject testosterone into a lizard or a dove or a monkey or even a person, um, they become more rank-oriented. Um, the, the studies of um, 
of um, homosexuals who want to change from being female to male. And they will report that, geez, no, I'm no longer, uh, I've got more of the male characteristics. I'm better at seeing patterns in the sidewalk. I'm not as good at finding the right word. Um, another one is with the dopamine system. If you give L-DOPA to a Parkinson's patient's patient, their creativity goes up. So by piecing together all of these various studies, which I did for years, to find out what traits are linked with what biological systems. I came up with literally four sheets of paper, each one of them, dopamine at the top of it, uh, uh, and the list of traits that other scientists in all kinds of ways, genetic studies, hormone studies, um, um, transitioning homosexual studies, uh, drugs of abuse, uh, uh, regular drugs, etc. you end up finding that there are four basic brain systems, dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen, linked with four uh, styles of thinking and behaving. And some of them are basic genetics. There is a gene in the serotonin system linked with religiosity. I mean, we know that. There's a gene in the dopamine system, uh, the DRD47 repeat allele for anybody who's interested, um, uh, uh, linked with risk-taking and novelty-seeking. So we've got genetic data, we've got hormone data, we have neurotransmitter data, we've got data from people taking drugs of abuse, uh, uh, drugs for various uh, 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 diseases, uh, etc. And together I, piled, I, rep- I compiled all that data. Okay, so I... I, I- I hear you saying that you connected a lot of dots, that the picture was not evident, that you had to collect a lot of dots before these systems came into focus. So that gives a sense of, of, the, of the, uh, the breadth of uh, disciplines that you explored in doing this work. I, I want to understand, though, when you are talking about serotonin drives or, or shapes or influences a certain type of personality and dopamine another, is this a zero-sum thing? In other words, if you're high in ser- if you have a high level of serotonin, you have a low level of dopamine, or can they both be high? Can they both be low? And what's the interaction among these four categories of of, chemist- of chemical? You know, it's really interesting that you ask that because um, I had assumed this stego system, the serotonin, the traditional, conventional, follows the rules, would be, and quite is, obviously very different from the dopamine, uh, risk-taking, novelty-seeking, curious, creative, spontaneous, and energetic. So I figured, well, okay, you're going to be largely one. How can you have some trace of the other? But for over 14 million people have um, taken this questionnaire in 40 countries. And I ended up finding a certain percentage of people who were really high on both. They were high on the traditional and conventional, and they were also high on the risk-taking. And those were the kind of people who I would take out to dinner because <laughs> I wanted to know who they were. As a matter of fact, I, I want to know how they vote. <laughs> well, I should ask. Actually, the one that I know would have uh, the conservative. He was conservative. And he's the head of a major, major food company in America today. And, of course, he's got some of the traits of both. I mean, he's, you know, people are, by the way, I have never met two people who are alike. I am an identical twin, as I mentioned, and even my identical twin sister and I are not exactly alike. And when I studied 100,000 people, no two people answered my questionnaire exactly the same way. I never met two people who were exactly alike. So it it still surprises me when I see somebody who's very high on the serotonin and the dopamine scale. But I've gotten used to the fact that there are all kinds of mixtures. 
And of course, we all express all four of these styles of thinking and behavior, but to different degrees. Now, for example, I'm very high on the dopamine scale. I am a risk taker, novelty seeker. I've been to 110 countries. I've gone to North Korea and the highlands of New Guinea and this place and that. Um, um, uh, uh, but I'm also very high on the estrogen scale. I cry easily at a parade, which revolts me, but anyway, uh, and, um, I'm hopefully verbally skilled and, and, um, do a lot of public speaking, et cetera. So I'm much lower on the uh, testosterone scale. I can barely add. Now here's where environment rolls in. You know, if I had a mother who had, who taught uh, math in, in primary school and a father who was an architect and we played math puzzles around the house, I'd be better at math. But will I ever be Einstein? Never. Not in my DNA. More with Helen Fisher coming up next. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., and we're wrapping up my conversation with anthropologist Helen Fisher about the fascinating world of genopolitics. Let's return to the where we began in the conversation where you were telling us that certain of these uh, uh, inheritances are going to lead to a conservative personality and certain other ones are going to lead to a liberal personality. And you touched on some of this, but let's go back and sort of put the whole list together. So... Create for us a picture of, of of the liberal brain system. What's going on? And again, what are the behaviors that you associate with liberally driven brain chemistry? Well, I just want to say that this really does come from science. First of all, I put, um, I created a questionnaire to see the degree to which you express the traits in all four of these brain systems. And I put people in the, no, people in the machine. Uh, fMRI. So people who scored high on my traits on of the dopamine system, which is linked with liberal. These people tend to be risk taking. So you, you put seeking. liberals in a in an MRI machine. That sounds like I the beginning regular, of a joke, but you put liberals yeah. in an MRI <laughs> in an MRI machine. And, and guess what I saw? Um, but tell people tell people put, what 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 you see actually literally when you put somebody in an MRI machine and you're looking at their brain. What is it that you get to see? Well, what you see is uh, blood flowing to certain areas that are working. You know, the parts of the brain that aren't working are not sucking up the blood. They need the blood for the nutrition, uh, for the food and the oxygen. And so brain regions that are active, let's say if I got you um, adding, uh, adding numerals, brain regions linked with math acuity would begin to become active and uh, they would suck up the blood to get the oxygen and the nutrients. So what MRI does is it just basically watches which part of the brain are active. And as it turns out, I then did a a third major uh, study of 40,000 people. And I knew, I asked them, are you liberal or are you conservative? And I found that those people who said that they were liberal on the questionnaire also scored much higher on the questionnaire that measured the liberal traits. So therefore, I was able to marry the brain circuitry for being for dopamine with people who are high on the dopamine scale and also liberal. Okay, and you and 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 you did the same thing with serotonin and and testosterone and dopamine. Okay. So as it turns out, uh, people who are very uh, high on my serotonin scale 
um, showed more activity in brain regions linked with serotonin and were more likely, much more likely to be conservative. People who scored high on my testosterone scale were also more likely to be conservative and people who scored higher on my estrogen scale were more likely to be liberal. So people who are liberal today are more likely to express the characteristics linked with the dopamine and estrogen uh, systems in the brain. And people who are today conservative are more likely to express the traits linked with the serotonin and testosterone systems in the brain. You know where I want to challenge you is on on this question, how do we define liberal and conservative? Um, because I, I think those are very, very soft terms and um, I, very, very, the, the, the boundary lines around them are, are really, really not clear and sort of assume a uniformity of views among the population that I don't think is necessarily there. So what, what in your calculations and your, and your descriptions, what makes a liberal liberal and what makes a conservative conservative for purposes of labeling them ultimately in, in your work? I, I have to depend on other people. And there's something called the William uh, Wilson-Patterson format. Uh, and they ask about 28 policies. There's a lot of other things that they, uh, that, that other uh, political scientists uh, regard as uh, uh, conservative and liberal values. But I'll just list some of them. Your attitudes. These are the uh, these are the things that people would regard that they would vary on conservative versus liberal. Support for military spending, uh, warrantless searches, the death penalty, the Patriot Act, obedience, following the rules, respecting authority, patriotism, uh, uh, school prayer, uh, belief that the Bible is true, uh, pacifism, are you opposed or for it? Uh, immigration policy, are you strict on it or liberal on it? Uh, gun control, foreign aid, uh, premarital sex, gay marriage, abortion rights, and pornography. Those are some of the things that political scientists use as a scale, where you stand on those issues. Well, where, where do the libertarians fit into that? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I gave a... I gave a um, uh, it's very interesting because I know some of the biology of libertarians. Uh, first of all, my husband is a libertarian and I can really understand some of that. They've got some of both. Um, I made a speech actually at uh, an Institute of Libertarians and I had them uh, take my questionnaire. And as it turns out, almost all of them were very high on the testosterone system and, and the dopamine system. So they were a combination of, of traits in the uh, liberal and the um uh, and the uh, conservative uh, track. Well, what's going on, for example, um, you know, we're living in a period now where um, the pandemic has become politicized and the wearing of face masks has become politicized and the cautious, safe, rule-abiding thing to do is to wear a face mask. But it's conservatives who are saying, I'm not going to wear the face mask. So how does that fit in with conservatives being rule abiding and and cautious that that they're they're defying um you know the, the what what the so-called experts are telling them to do and 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 they're and they're and they're taking the risk of large gatherings and motorcycle rallies and things like that i mean how does how does that fit together 
Well, it's interesting because uh, I was recently uh, wrestling with this, and I'd like to know your thought about it. But um, they don't like the nanny state. They don't like to be told what to do. And this, I'm guessing, but I'm guessing that this is uh, um, this is their perspective. That uh, you know, um, and I agree with you. I have tried. I would love to hand everybody in the street my questionnaire because my hypothesis was that conservatives would be high on the serotonin, they would be more cautious, they would be more fearful, and they would wear the mask. But I, I have not been able to find that. Of course, I can't ask the people in the street either. So, But I, my guess is that they have a fear of the nanny state. They're afraid of people telling them that, all right, uh, you're going to tell me to wear a mask. Next time, you're going to tell me that, that I have to uh, give up my gun. And so they, they, I think that's their perspective. You know, what's interesting is, I don't know, this may be... Um, this may be applicable here. There's a very interesting uh, neuroimaging study of, 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 how, of how, whether people can change. Can they, can they change their perspective? And what they did is they put people into the brain scanner and they showed them three slides. Uh, the first slide is of uh, their party's candidate, saying something that was very positive that they were very familiar with. The second slide was a slide of something their candidate also said that was completely contradictory. Um, and something like, oh, I don't know, the first slide, but I'm making this up now. You know, I'm not prejudiced against anybody in the world. All people are good people. And then the second slide saying, mm, all illegal immigrants uh, from Mexico are rapists, uh, thieves, and, and murderers. Well, those two concepts don't go together. What happens in the brain is that it picks up the contradiction, but then the emotions flood that area and overcome the contradiction. And then they're shown a third slide, uh, and the third slide actually um, is a rationale, an explanation for the contradiction. And then they get a huge surge from the base of the brain linked with pleasure. They've been able to resolve the contradiction. So to answer your question, maybe... Maybe because conservatives today are listening to Trump, which they are. Um, they see because he's told them that it's not scary, that uh, it's happened to him and he survived just fine. It'll happen to them. And so, therefore, uh, they can deal with the contradiction. I, I have to say, it sounds to me as though the liberal side gets to have more of the uh, sort sort of more attractive complementary traits on their menu, and that the conservatives seem to be getting kind of lumbered with the not so attractive traits. Now, I know you said the conservatives are conscientious, and that's an important thing, but you're also saying they're scared and they're worried, and they're you know that they're husbanding their resources. They're not they're they're not generous. They're parsimonious, and those are all kind of pejorative words, and I, that's how it's sounding to me. And I, so I want to take that back to you. How do you share and have this conversation without insulting conservatives in the portrait that you're painting of them? Well, I'm hoping that it's the way you're hearing it and not the way I'm saying it. But I'm going to assume that I have actually said it, but I don't believe it. I, I mean, there's a great many conservative values that are extremely valuable, I mean, religion has been in an enormous uh, form of, of, of social uh, organization. Um, I mean, uh, people who are harm avoidant, 
So, 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 what are the what are the things what are the things that liberals are uh, in that that's part of the liberal framework that would not be necessarily um, isn't isn't necessarily so charming or admirable? Well, first of all, I'm not in the good bad business. I think you're going into the good bad. But you're you're hearing good and bad, whereas I, I'm not. I'm actually not trying to uh, do good or bad. I'm I'm trying to say that uh, both forms styles of thinking have been very useful. For okay. a long, long time. Can I give you just one example? Yeah, but before you do, before you do that, let me let me just say that I, I hear you that you're not doing that, and maybe it's a filter that I'm putting on it. So I want to relieve you of that of that question because you're you've made the case that that's not what you're doing. So I just want to put that out there. But yeah, go forward. Well, thank you, um, and I, I I hope I'm right. Um, I but anyway, I'll go back a million years. This, uh, we're, we're traveling in a little hunting and gathering group. There's 25 individuals in the group. About 10 or 12 are adolescents and, and, and children. The others are 10 to 12 grown-ups. So you got some who are the high uh, dopamine, risk-taking, novelty-seeking. I call them explorers. You got some of the conventional, traditional. Uh, I call them builders, the high serotonin type. You got some of the high testosterone, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical, uh, good at experiments the high testosterone, I call them directors. And the fourth, you've got some people who are high estrogen. They are they see the big picture. They think holistically long-term. They're good at reading posture, gesture, tone, and voice. Uh, and they uh, express empathy and they're trusting. So all four styles of thinking and behavior are moving along. They go over the hill. And suddenly they see some mushrooms. Well, you can't have all of the liberal experimenting, risk-taking, say, ah, let's try the mushrooms. you got to have some of the conservative, traditional, say, it's not in our tradition to try these mushrooms. you got to have some of the high testosterone, uh, analytical, experimenting kind to say, well, let's feed the mushrooms to the dog and find out what happens. And you got to have some high estrogen, uh, verbally skilled people skills who say, let's sit down and, and pool our data about these mushrooms. The bottom line is you need all four. They all evolved together. And what we see in America today, going back to the 1970s, is swings from actually polarization. Apparently in the 70s and 80s, there was not much polarization. And then I thought apparently by 1996, you see more and more polarization. So that becomes the question, why are we so polarized? But one of the things about leaders I've read, you know, a good leader can express all four. Uh, knows enough to be the risk taker when it's the right thing to do, to be conservative when it's the right thing to do, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so I hear you saying that we need conservatives and we need liberals and we need everybody Absolutely. in between, even the libertarians. And um, <laughs> so, so to, to, to wrap up the conversation you know, the point that you just made, we've been more polarized in the last few years than we were in the 80s or 90s. I think most of us see that as a problem. It's a, it's a concern uh, because it suggests a lack of common ground, which suggests the possibility of a rupture of a serious kind uh, that we may already be experiencing that could get worse. Who knows? So what do we do with this information? If, if the yeah. goal is to at least find a little bit 
more common ground without having to sacrifice your positions, without having to sacrifice who you are even, or even mm-hmm. without having to try to change yourself, which it sounds like you're saying is not really possible. Yeah. What do we do with this information? Well, foremost, we can change, but it's very tiring. You can act out of character, but it's very tiring. If I had to say it in one sentence, I would say that it's adaptive to understand that other people hold their values. They're not likely to change and that their values really can be of some use. We need to put our heads together. Conservatives and liberals are like two feet. We need each other to get ahead. Well, so that's your message. We we, we need each other. And... Um... Boy, it sure doesn't feel like many people are feeling that way right now. Well, I, I think that uh, we're going to see continue to see. Pol- no, they aren't. But Mr. Trump has, has stirred the pot. And I think other things have stirred the pot. I mean, you know, the Internet enables people today to only follow the, their tribe. Uh, yeah. You know, when we were all watching just ABC, NBC and CBS, we were all getting the same news. We're not getting the same news anymore. It's amazing how many people I ask who are liberals if they've ever watched Fox News and they say, oh, I wouldn't do that. And I've asked conservatives, would you ever watch MSNBC? Oh, no. Oh, uh, oh heavens no. So I do think that the Internet is, polar- is enabling people to um, stick with their tribe and not understand others. I also think that women piling into the job market is changing the social order, and that is amping up conservatives to be afraid of of, of change. Well, there's a debate we can have down the road and get you back <laughs> on our stage. But I want to I want to I want to point out I want to wrap this up by pointing out that when you debated on uh, whether dating apps were bad for romance or not, and you were arguing that they were not, that night you won. The debate. You and your partner won the debate, and you did so by persuading the uh, more of the audience to vote for your side than for the other side between the first and the second vote. And I looked at the numbers, and you won because nine percent of the audience that initially voted against you was persuaded by you to change their minds and vote for your side. So I don't know what happened there, but those people left behind a deep conviction, and maybe it wasn't so deep, but they left behind a conviction that you were wrong and came around by the end of the evening to thinking that you were right. So what does that tell us? Well, I think I'd like to say they're logical. I mean, number one, these are not dating sites. All they are is introducing sites. When you meet somebody, your ancient brain clicks into no, action. No, no, no. But, but Helen, you I know? don't mean in the sense of the specifics. I'm, I'm talking about the ability for people to change their minds. I think they want to change their minds. I think they want to change their minds about love. It's amazing what people will do when they are in love. <laughs> 46, 48% of people right now would uh, believe you can fall in love with somebody who has very different political beliefs. Well, that's less than it used to be, but it's still a lot of people. You know, we are driven to love. I mean, I'll say it again. We pine for love. We live for love. We kill for love. We die for love. In that part of humanity, we tend to be flexible. Helen Fisher, I want to thank you so much for joining us talking about this topic that goes under the heading of genopolitics. Uh, It's been fascinating. It sounds like you're going to be publishing a lot more. We're looking forward to seeing it. And as I said, we would love to get you back uh, on on our stage to debate whatever it's going to be where you bring uh, poetry and science together. Helen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, John. This episode of Intelligence Squared was recorded on December 1st, 2020. 
Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much for joining us. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.